0: This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host G. Sampath. In the last week of January, the US, Germany, and the UK pledged to send modern main battle tanks, or MBTs, as they are known, to help Ukraine in the ongoing war with Russia, while. The US has agreed to send 31 of its M1 Abrams tank. Germany will supply 82, 88 rather, Leopard 2 tanks, while the UK has pledged 14 of its Challenger 2 tanks. These are far short of the number demanded by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He wanted 300, but it wasn't an easy decision to make even for those who are giving uh, these tanks, especially Germany. Battle tanks are also known to work best with air support. And now Zelensky has also started asking for combat aircraft, namely F-60s. So can the supply of such heavy firepower turn the war in favor of Ukraine? When will these tanks reach the war zone? That's also a big question, which is not very clear. And what about the training of Ukrainian troops in the use of these tanks? They are not used to uh, these Western tanks as of now. So, and what impact will their entry cause on Russia's battle tactics? We discuss all these questions and more in this episode of In Focus. And we have with us Stanley Johnny, the Hindu's International Affairs Editor. Stanley, thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks,
1: Ambut. Uh, so, Stanley, it's been a while since we uh, sort of had our conversation on the Ukraine war. So, can you quickly sort of give an overview? Of what the situation is on the ground at the moment. I mean, we've read reports that the last couple of days has been heavy fighting on the east in eastern Ukraine, especially around the, the Bakhmut city, where the Russians seem to be making some uh, gains. So, in terms of the big picture of the war, how are the two sides poised at present? Have either of them been able to use the winter to their advantage?
0: Yeah, hi, Sambat. I think we had our last chat in December after the Russian withdrawal from Kherson, Kherson city. So at that time, the Ukrainian counteroffensive was at its peak, which started in late August, and the Ukrainians had pushed the Russians out of Kharkiv. They had taken a comprehensive victory in Kharkiv Oblast. And then uh, in Kherson, the Russians uh, took a tactical decision of uh, pulling out of uh, the city to the other side of the river, so that they can protect their, you know, hold of the rest of the Kherson province. Uh, And so the Ukrainians had the momentum in their favor up to December, from late August to December. But since then, uh, you know, the war had kind of uh, uh, ended into a frozen stage, because uh, the Ukrainians failed to break through the Russian defensive lines. And now you have a line of contact, which is uh, stretching into 1,000 kilometers, roughly 1,000 kilometers, you know, right from the northeast, from the borders of Kharkiv to the borders of Kherson in the southwest. So it is is a very long front line now. And there were shelling's going on, you know, frequent shelling's going on uh, across the front lines. But... The front line remained frozen more or less until recently. And now what we saw is that in Bakhmut, Bakhmut is in Donetsk. It is in the northern, northeastern side of Donetsk. So Donetsk the Russians have claimed Donetsk as part of their territory. And part and half of Donetsk is now controlled by the Russians. So in Bakhmut, the fighting has been going on in Bakhmut for over you know six months. And it is the Wagner. Uh, PMC, the private military company, which is closely linked to the Kremlin, that has been fighting in Bakhmut. So in Bakhmut, the Russians have started making advances of late, you know. So uh, what the Wagner did, what we could understand uh, from the reports available before us is that they've been trying to take Bakhmut for, uh, for months, which didn't work. So they shifted their focus to Solidar, which is a sister city. And Solidar's defense just crumbled and they took Solidar last month. And now they are approaching Bakhmut from three sides. So if you look at the map, so Bakhmut is now being surrounded, practically being surrounded. The Russians are coming from the north, the Russians are coming from the south, and the Russians are coming from the east. So basically the Russians are now chalking Bakhmut. So of all the highways linking Bakhmut, all except one. Which is coming from the west are now under the Russian control. So the Ukrainians are struggling to resupply to their troops that were kind of trapped in Bakhmut. So they have only one highway, either to resupply or to retreat. And they have to take that decision quickly. Because once now the Russians are trying to capture that highway as well. Once they do that, Bakhmut will be cut off. So this is the situation in Bakhmut. So it looks like that the Russians would take Bakhmut in a matter of days. Not just that. And the Russians down south, south in Donetsk, they had opened another front line in Ugladar. So, yesterday, Wagner PMC claimed that they had already taken Ugladar, which the Kremlin hasn't confirmed yet. But there were independent reports, like Wall Street Journal has reported at this point of time in Bakhmut. There are ground reports. So, there are independent reports claiming that Ugladar is also falling. So, what we could understand is that the conflict was frozen for months after the Ukrainian counter-offensive which started in August, and since December it's been frozen, and now the momentum, at least in Donetsk, is shifting in favor of Russians. And the bigger picture is that the Russians haven't started their offensive yet, their counter-offensive yet. So they are keeping the Ukrainians, you know, Ukrainian forces engaged in Donetsk by opening two fronts: One is in Bakhmut and the other is in Ukledar. Solidar has already fallen. Why? the main russian troops are preparing for a major counter offensive i think that is the situation at this point of time
1: right you uh, we'll come back to this major uh, counter offensive in a bit uh, because uh, you spoke of a 1000 kilometer long front line and there is concentrated fighting in this uh, city in donetsk uh, now in this scenario How do you see the main battle tank, the MBT uh, infusion or the entry of these battle tanks uh, changing things? I mean, Zelensky wanted 300, he's going to get around 130. So what is he going to achieve with 130-odd tanks in this uh, battle scenario which you've so well outlined us now?
0: Yeah, um, see, uh, over the last uh, few weeks, we all saw that there was a scramble in the West for more weapons to be sent to Ukraine. So, you had this uh, uh, summit in Germany uh, in the military base, which interestingly ended without any conclusion on whether uh, Germany should send Leopard 2 or not. But then Germany came under pressure, and finally, Olaf Scholz took a U turn and decided to send. Leopard 2 and also allow other NATO members to re export leopards to.
1: So, Stanley, uh, just, uh, so when you say Germany came under pressure, do you mean Germany came under pressure because there was a domestic groundswell of opinion in favor of helping Ukraine or did it come from pressure from its allies, the US uh, and others? Like, where was the pressure point coming from?
0: No, domestic, you see the opinion polls, most of the Germans, more than 50% of the Germans, according to opinion polls, they against the German government sending Leopard to uh, Ukraine. So, there is a majority public opinion against Germany sending the tanks to Ukraine and escalating the conflict further.
1: Right. And even Olaf Schulz's SPD is also traditionally sort of seen to be a pro-Russia. As in if not pro-Russia, at least friendly towards Russia. They are not the ones, I mean, their original manifesto was not really uh, about, you know, winning the war against Russia. So, where did this pressure come that they took a U-turn?
0: Yeah, I think uh, Germany is part of NATO and there was a growing consensus within NATO that they have to act now because they also saw that the battlefield momentum is shifting in favor of Russia. So uh, Ukraine had almost all independent reports confirmed that Ukraine is taking heavy casualties in Bakhmut and Russians are also taking casualties but the bigger story is that Russia has recently drafted three hundred thousand more uh, more troops, so Russia is now preparing a much bigger forces. so the Russians have the stomach to take casualties, whereas on the other side the Ukrainians ever since the war began, had taken you know heavy human casualties. so the pressure was building on basically on Ukraine so the NATO allies, including the United States, they wanted Swift. Weapon supply, heavier weapon supplies to Ukraine to help Ukraine prepare itself better for the next Russian uh, offensive. But on the other side, you look at it from the German point of view. So, we have already discussed the domestic opinion. And then, Olaf Scholz himself, according to Western reports, uh, read Wall Street Journal or New York Times or whatever, Scholz himself was reluctant because of many reasons. One is that, you know, he was, he was very sensitive to the historical context. 80 years ago, or 82 years ago, German tanks rolled over to Ukraine, which was then part of uh, the Soviet Union. And then, you know, the Nazi, the, the, the infamous Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. And 80 years later, they are sending tanks, of course, to help Ukraine. But still, Putin, you look at what Putin said yesterday at the Stalingrad Memorial talk. He said that 80 years later, German tanks tanks are again coming to threaten Russia. So this is the narrative he is spinning. So Scholz was very uh, sensitive towards the historical context. He was also worried whether the Germans, whether the Russians would capture the tanks and understand the technology. And he also did not want uh, the crisis to escalate out of control. And if a crisis breaks out, you know, if a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia breaks out, Germany is right in the line of fire, and Germany doesn't have a nuclear deterrent on its own, unlike UK or France, which are even territorially, geographically located far away. So Germany had its own legitimate concerns, but at the same time, Germany doesn't have strategic autonomy. It is part of NATO. It is, It, you know, it, is, it's, it's, uh, it, it cannot take independent, defensive and uh, security decisions. So once NATO takes a decision, when it comes under huge pressure, from the united states from france from the from the uk from poland i don't know. i think germany's hands are tied that explains the u turn so initially germany was reluctant and throughout the ukraine war you look at the decisions germany had taken initially germany was reluctant to send weapons at all but when the war dragged on germany decided to send weapons germany is now i think uh, the second largest along with the uk supplier of uh, military aid to ukraine after the united states and germany you know, sacrificed its pipeline. It shut the Nord Stream 2 pipeline at the early stage of the war and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was blown up. We don't know who, by the Americans, by the Brits, we have no idea because there is no investigation about it. There is no independent investigation about it. There are no reports about it. There are no independent media reports about it. But the Nord Stream 1 pipeline was blown off. So Germany has already suffered massively uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, its economy, and German economy is expected to grow only what, 0.1% this year uh, in 2023, whereas even the Russian economy is expected to grow more than Germany. So this is the economic situation Germany is in. But still, Germany is under pressure to take these decisions, so that I think because it is part of NATO, it is part of the collective security alliance, I don't think Germany has the strategic autonomy to take decisions here. Well, it eventually decided it took a U-turn it eventually decided to send the tanks to the tanks to Ukraine but the you know yeah of course uh, the question is how these tanks are going to impact Ukrainian defensive positions or Ukrainian offenses in the future
1: Right. It, it's very interesting uh, what you've outlined just now, Stanley, in terms of uh, the German perspective on whether or not to sort of indulge in this uh, sort of escalating ladder of bigger and bigger weapons. Because one of the, uh, the sort of the kind of line we're getting from the Western press on this is basically there are two points here. One is that uh, Olaf Scholz and Germany were basically were basically waiting for the US to agree to send M1 Abrams tanks so that they have an additional layer of security before they themselves agree to send uh, the leopard stamps which is why you have 88 leopard but just 31 m abrams, abrams and we don't even know when those abrams stamps are going to come because you know they probably may have to be even manufactured because they may not be lying idle and so this is one line which is being put out the other line which is being put out is that this is not really a NATO story at all, because this is a demand coming from individual countries in Europe who are individually interested in sending their weapons. So this is not a NATO operation. And therefore, Russia cannot claim that this is an escalation being sort of piloted by NATO. It's just countries acting in the capacity who are in the neighborhood. So do you how do you see this sort of uh, line being put out?
0: Yeah, those two arguments. One is Abraham tanks. Uh, I think the German position initially was that when they were asked to send Leopard, the Germans said that, they told the Americans, you are not sending your battle tanks, then why are you asking us to send it? And the United States initially said, there were public comments by um, Austin and others, the United States said that M1 Abrams are not fit for European conditions, and we also use jet fuel to run the tanks, and it's it's a very complex system, etc., etc., So the Germans said that you are not sending your main battle tanks to fight the Russians and you are asking us to send it. So it's not acceptable. So then finally, I think uh, through some talks, bilateral talks, because in the summit, uh, they failed to reach any consensus. After that, in in some talks, the Americans had also agreed to send uh, Abrams. But the American decision is largely symbolic because, as you said, it would take time to train Ukrainians on Abrams and it is only 31 Abrams. The British decision was also symbolic. They are sending only 14 uh, Challenger 2s. But whereas uh, Leopard is what could be a game changer because there are more than 2,000 Leopard tanks already deployed in Europe. So uh, other European countries can easily export them to Ukraine, send them to Ukraine. And even the parts, they could send them uh, rather quickly. And the Ukrainians could be trained within months, unlike in the case of Abrams, where they take it would take a long time. So I think when it comes to Abrams and Challenger, the United States and the UK, they showed their political commitment, saying that, yes, we are with the Ukrainians, but the real decision has to come from Germany, and it did eventually come from Germany. Germany decided to send its own tanks. It also decided to allow other countries that had uh, bought leopards to re-export them to Ukraine. And then the second, the NATO argument, yeah, individual demands, but at the same time, all these countries are NATO members. I mean, you can make an argument, but we know what it is. You know, the United States is the most powerful country in within the NATO alliance. And then all these countries, whether it is the United Kingdom, whether it is France, whether it is Germany, whether it is Poland, uh, you know, whether it is Estonia, whether it is Latvia, whether it is Lithuania, you name any country except maybe Japan, Right. And Japan is now whatever uh, strengthening cooperation and dialogue, strategic dialogue with NATO. But it's okay, Japan is not a member, but still you name any country that are sending heavy weapons, armored vehicles, precision munitions, uh, long range rockets, all these countries are NATO members. How can you take NATO out of this? It's impossible. it is it doesn't uh, it is not commonsensical, that's what I think.
1: Okay. Okay. Now, you, you spoke earlier about, I mean, uh, the timeline and, you uh, know, the fact that the American M1 uh, Abrams tank and the Challenger ones are going to be largely symbolic because we don't know when they're going to cross the oceans and reach the war zone and so on. Now, assuming it just remains at the symbolic level and basically Ukraine is getting uh, the Leopard uh, tanks. I think the German defense minister said that we're going to make them hopefully available uh, on the ground by the end of March. Or early April. So, in the context of what you said earlier about uh, an, an imminent offensive, we don't know whether it's going to be a spring offensive because they say that spring is going to be really muddy and it's not ideal for launching a big campaign. Or let's say it's a late winter, in which case it can happen maybe next week. We don't know. So, are these tanks going to be on time for making a difference in the imminent offensive? or are they going to be too late or are they still it doesn't really matter they are going to sort of be there and make a decisive impact as and when they come in
0: yeah so uh, I think the Ukrainians they warned yesterday Ukrainian defense ministry warned yesterday that the Russian offensive is coming this month it could be on or before February 24th the first year of the war
1: so it will be before the spring that means
0: yeah before the spring and in February be on or before 24th which means the tanks would not be there so, even if the tanks are there, you know, the tanks alone, they are not a silver bullet. It is it is a very complex system. But at the same time, over the last uh, few months, the Russians have built satellite imagery, has shown that the Russians have built primary and secondary defensive lines with the trenches, etc., etc. So, Ukraine says it wants to take back all the territories it lost to the Russians. And if it wants to do that, it has to tour, tear through with the Russian defensive lines through these plunges, so in you know if that is the that is your goal, of course the tank fire would play an important role. But tanks alone would not bring in that kind of a, a difference. You know you need uh, 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 you need infantry uh, troops to mark the targets, and then the tank fire to tear through the defensive lines. And since Ukraine doesn't have advanced aircraft uh, like F sixteen etc you need the uh, long range rockets and artillery uh, to cover uh, your uh, advances so it is you know uh, it, is, it is a combined uh, uh, battlefield maneuvering that ukraine needs i think that's what in the long time that's maybe that's what the americans and the british are trying to ukraine for so that's why so more than tanks more than ma- battle tanks you look at the other weapons they have uh, provided the americans have agreed to send some over 100 uh, Bradley fighting vehicles and the uh, striker armored vehicles. The French had promised AMX-10RC battle, uh, uh, battle tank killers. And the Americans are also sending additional HIMAR long-range rockets with uh, precision-guided munitions. Uh, so they are flooding Ukraine with uh, weapons, offensive weapons, basically. So this is, I think, in the long term, they want to prepare Ukraine Uh, you know, to hold against the Russians or for their offensives. That is the plan. This is a long-term plan. So, definitely before the Russian offensive begins, if it is beginning this month, I don't think any of these changes we are seeing now would make any uh, major difference. On the other side, it is the Ukrainians will have to fight the Russians with the weapons they currently have, uh, you know. Uh, But in the long term, they are planning to, Form this kind of armored units. Armored units means infantry, tanks, armored vehicles, precision-guided weapons, and long-range rocket systems. And we don't know whether F-16s or other uh, attack, uh, advanced attack jets are coming. Uh, if they are coming, they would pr- provide air cover. So, which means an American model or European model, you know, French model, armored units would be formed in Ukraine. So, this is the long-term goal, I think. But in the immediate, so that's what we are saying. So in the short term, in the immediate terms, the Russians have a window of opportunity. And I would be surprised if they don't capture that window.
1: Right. So, you spoke about uh, F-16s and armoured units and so on. I mean, Zelensky is already asking for f but Germany has said no. And I think the US has also said no, in so many, if not in so many words. So, But do you think this is just a temporary no? It's going to uh, sort of become a yes over the course of the war? Because, I mean, as you said about how the long-term vision of the West, in terms of the whole approach to the war, uh, it seems to suggest, uh, it's also been suggested by other experts or uh, defense experts that uh, if you if you are able to create a Ukrainian sort of a defense system which sort of integrates uh, the, the the air force, the ground forces, with even their naval forces and satellite and an advanced signaling system, then it it sort of adds up to a very advanced battle tactics scenario which is a cutting edge Western uh, military tactics and which could be far superior to the old Soviet era tactics which might be, according to them, the case with uh, with the Russian military. So, that could end up giving Ukraine the kind of a military superiority, purely on the basis of advanced technology which Russia doesn't possess, and, and an opportunity to sort of turn the tide of the war. Do you think that's uh, sort of the likely trajectory we're going to see?
0: So, it's very difficult to see what the West actually is planning to do. There are mixed signals, right? On the one side, yes, uh, you see that there is a scramble in the West to send more weapons to Ukraine, including MBTs, armored vehicles, munitions, advanced munitions, etc., etc. On the other side, if you have noticed uh, Anthony Blinken's interview with David Ignatius in Washington Post last week, in which Blinken says that the United States definitely doesn't want a direct confrontation with Russia. So the primary uh, objective of uh, the U.S. involvement in Ukraine or the U.S.'s assistance for Ukraine is that President Biden is very certain about it, that there is no World War III. And secondly, Blinken also says that, you know, Crimea is a no-go area. He says that uh, uh, when Putin uh, threatened uh, of nuclear retaliation, the Americans have taken it seriously. Uh, in a sense, Crimea is part of, uh, they won't recognize it, but still, uh, he says that it is uh, uh, it is impractical uh to, to for the ukrainians to take Crimea back. And he also says that he supports the Ukrainian desire to take more uh territories back, but he doesn't specify which are those territories. He doesn't say that he would support Ukraine taking all of the uh, February twenty four post February 24, 24 territories back. He doesn't say that. He's a diplomat. They use their words very you know carefully. So there are, they are sending mixed signals. So on the one side, they are sending weapons to Ukraine. On the other side, they say that they are sending signals of some kind of a rapprochement. I don't know when this is going to happen. No idea. So it's not clear what the West is actually trying to achieve, because there are other reports also. RAND Corporation came up with this report saying that a long war would help the Russians and would prove against the American interests in Ukraine, so that the United States, at least on the line of contact, the existing line of contact, the United States should push for peace. That's what the RAND Corporation report is now saying. And there were, when the Ukrainian offensive was on, there were debates in Western media saying that Ukraine was finally winning the war. But then, now that debate is also shifting, right, when the Russians are building momentum and the war is dragging on. Uh, despite whatever, despite the U.S., uh, uh, despite NATO's military support for Ukraine, despite the economic sanctions on Russia, et cetera, et cetera, you know uh, the war is still dragging on, and the Russians uh, have mobilized some five hundred thousand troops now on the border. Uh, so it all suggests that there is there is no off ramp, and there is no way out of this crisis. So so, so someone has to find a way out right so i think there is a bit of uh, there is a lack of clarity on all sides at this point of time we don't know what the united states actually wants to achieve f- from this but as of now yes with more weapons they are trying to bolster the ukrainian military positions uh, in the long term but uh, whether they would send aircraft whether uh, I, you know right now biden said no but we don't know whether they would change that position because in the at the big early stage of the war the united states said they won't send rockets and they send rockets. The United States said they won't send patriots, and they decided to send patriots. The Germans said they won't send weapons at all, and they decided to send weapons. The Germans said they won't send leopards, and they decided to send leopards. And the United States decided to send Himars only after the Ukrainians lost uh, uh, Mariupol and Severodonetsk. So, uh, if the Russians make further gains, we don't know what the United States is uh, going to decide next, so they might their position on f sixteen could also change so I think there is there are mixed signals there is lack of clarity on what uh, they are trying to achieve, whereas on the other side the Russians I think they have with additional troops by uh, preparing for the next offensive, the Russians are clear that they wanted to go on go ahead with the uh, there, what within quotes,
1: special military operation. Right. So, uh, we are running out of time. So, one final question before we wind up. So, speaking of Russia's uh, reaction to this whole development of uh, you know, main battle tanks coming in, in addition to all those Himars and other uh, advanced weaponry, their spokesperson has warned of uh, what he what they term a permanent escalation. Now, it seems to be like somewhat similar to what you just described. The more Russia makes gains, the more it seems to be winning, the more the kinds of escalation in terms of weaponry being supplied to Ukraine. So is that what they mean? What do they exactly mean by permanent escalation? That sounds like there's going to be no end uh, to the war. And it also sort of implies that Russia is not able to sort of control, uh, have much of a control on what kind of heavy weaponry the West is going to go on uh, supplying in terms of both firepower and in terms of numbers. Uh, As well. So, how do we understand this term of permanent escalation and is there uh, going to be anything of an off ramp from this permanent escalation?
0: Yeah, as of now, there is no off ramp. I don't see any off ramp because, uh, yeah, um, as you said, Russia cannot control the supply of weapons to Ukraine. And uh, at the end of the day, it should be a matter of concern for Putin because when he started the war, uh, he said his main two main Objectives were denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine, and now Ukraine is has uh, you know is possessing more heavy weapons than it had before the war, including battle tanks and long-range rockets and uh, advanced munitions, etc., etc. So, from a strategic point of view, it should worry Putin. But at the same time, I think the Russians are clear that they need to proceed with the operation. We all know that the February 24 uh, attack, it went wrong. Uh, the Russians did not expect this to be such a long conflict. So they were not even prepared for this kind of a long war. I think they misjudged the, both Ukrainian response and the resolve of the West to support Ukraine. They expected to, to take a quick victory. That didn't happen. And they were making incremental territorial progress in the early months of the war. And the Ukrainians could turn it around with additional weapons and intelligence help coming from the West.
1: Okay, this is going to this is going to sorry to This is going to sound a bit tacky, kind of a question, but I was just wondering, February twenty fourth, uh, in the context of the, the the big offensive, which is likely to come, is there any sort of a plan, or like you think, like which is likely that they want to sort of come to come to the domestic audience with a big prize on the one year anniversary or whatever of this military operation, so that by february twenty fourth after one year, they want to have they want to show something uh, to the domestic audience in Russia.
0: Possible because just look at the numbers. on february twenty fourth last year, the Russians had mobilized less than two hundred thousand troops, which many military experts had challenged because for Ukraine, which had over three hundred thousand standing army, Putin had mobilized less than 200,000 troops and went for a full-scale war. That's because I think the Russians had expected that Ukrainian troops would crumble as soon as the Russians were in. That didn't happen, right? And now, on the first anniversary, the Ukrainian Defense Ministry now says that the Russians have mobilized 500,000 troops on the border. That is huge. That's what the Russian offensive we are talking about.
1: Right, right. Thank you so much, Tanli, for another wonderful explanation of what's going on in the war theatre there. Uh, look forward to talking to you once again soon. Thank you.
0: Thank you, much Thanks for having me.
1: In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for in focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.